So we wanted to wrap the show up talking with Andy and everybody that worked on the show and a special guest that I'm going to introduce. But unfortunately, Andy uh, double booked himself today without uh, ever telling us and is not here. So we call it a double booking? <laughs> that's what, that's <laughs> my polite introduction of what happened today. But this is a show called Addicted, and this isn't an uncommon thing that happens with people, the addiction and people dealing with them. And I really want to get into that and everything that happened today and over the past months of recording this show. But I do want to introduce our guest first, who's going to help us navigate everything that has happened along the way and uh, maybe put us in check a little bit. Our guest today is Dr. John Arden, and for 25 years, John was the chief psychologist and then the director of training for mental health at Kaiser Permanente's Northern California healthcare system and over 24 medical centers. He is an accomplished author and through his writing connects research between neuroscience and psychology. His books include Mind, Brain, Gene, Brain to Brain, The Brain Bible, and rewire your brain. His seeds formula detailed in his book is healthy brain factors that you need to plant now and cultivate through the rest of your life. And I connected to Dr. Arden to be a guest on our show and talk to Andy when we first started production. But what happened was, is we started talking regularly. And as a result, he kind of became my behind the scenes bouncing board therapist, if you will through the whole production of the show. So he's really gotten to know Andy through my eyes, and he's also been listening to all of the episodes that have been released up to this point. And through my experience and perspective, he's kind of been counseling me and giving his own opinion on what's going on with Andy. And he's going to help us tie it all together today. Wake up, folks. It's Andy Dick. And this is addicted. Inside the mind of any day, so many ways to turn. So take your pick inside the mind of any day. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I would love to hear what's going on with Mr. Andy Dick from a professional that's listening to the show, you know, and having therapy sessions with Brandy herself, who I think probably has PTSD by now. <laughs> and uh, today was the piece of resistance, I would say, after. Oh, by the way, I flew across the country to wrap up the show and our uh, our guest on his own show isn't here. <laughs> I want to say something that is important, and, and it's an ethical-related issue because, you know, I don't even actually know Andy. All I know of Andy is through listening to the podcast and, and talking to you, Brandy. And so uh, to actually diagnose and get in the head of Andy and all that would be disingenuous. And out of the, the scope of my practice, you know, as a licensed psychologist and all that, however, I can talk in more general terms about what happens to people that are addicted and have this sort of chaotic lifestyle and, and everything else, and what happens to the people that are trying to hold things together, like you, and uh, how you are all exhausted by the process. And that, I think, might be somewhat useful to your listeners because 
this general problem, you know, take Andy out of the picture. Andy's just a person and we have people, thousands, if not millions of people that uh, have various addictions and, and sort of consume others. And those others that are being consumed are taking care of the business, making sure that the person is somewhat okay. And it sounds like you're both exhausted from it. <laughs> Definitely. Randy more so than me. Well, I've been more of the day-to-day person and I, uh, Coming over here today, Dee Dee, who drove Andy back and forth and put up with shenanigans that we didn't really even know about, someone I know about today and others she can share if she wishes, uh, really, you know, had, was physically there with him. And, you know, I was on the phone and on Zoom and I feel like I know him really well, but we've actually never met in person, you know, because we've been doing this during COVID. So feel free to chime in. When you want, Didi. How about now, Didi? You can't leave. You can't say something like that and not like feel and then, what happened. And then just leave it. I mean, I could, but it would be anticlimactic. Andy is an adventure. Every day is different, but addiction is definitely has a very firm grasp on him. And I'm not sure that he wants to get better. I think when he comes in here and he talks to the experts. And, you know, you start pulling the little pieces out from him. I think in that moment, he does want to get better with Dr. Amen, with, all, you know, all of these people. But then as soon as he goes back outside, he, it all goes away. He all forgets. He's, he's in the moment. Andy's in the moment all the time. And it's chaotic from one moment to the next. I actually think, and he would tell you this, he doesn't remember from moment to moment. I believe that. I mean... We talk about him starting to drink in the middle of the podcast, and I will tell you that it is before the podcast begins that he's already en route. So, I mean, we hear a little bit of that devolution in each of these episodes, but it's it's something that he definitely is dealing with, and I'm not sure if at this point, I think he said he's been to 27 rehabs, that he feels that he can actually get better. I think he's kind of resigned himself. That's what it feels like, which is sad because I like Andy a lot. He's a nice guy when he's sober. One thing that occurred to me uh, when Didi was talking about Andy's drinking on the way in, and, and then I was thinking about Dan Amon's, let's say, revelation or his what his scan uh, seemed to indicate and what Andy actually even questioned and that was, geez, you mean the front part of my brain, the thinking part of my brain isn't isn't working? And and you know, one of the things we really know about with various types of substance abuse, certainly alcohol, is if you want to turn off the part of the brain that is doing the monitoring from day to day. I mean, Didi just said that he's in the moment and he can't stay in a continuous sort of pattern that this thing leads to the next thing. And, you know, I'm going to stay somewhat coherent between the moments. Well, the prefrontal cortex does that. And what we know about any kind of substance abuse is you kind of turn that off and you're just this almost kind of like a a water hose, a garden hose that's turned on and nobody's holding the hose and it's flipping around all over the place, getting everybody wet. And so the getting wet in Andy's case, based on what you said, is kind of spraying out all these comments all over the place. And interestingly, it seems that that's his character in his professional life as well. So it wasn't that hard for him to get in character and spray that you know, erratic behavior all over the place. And uh, maybe he does it without the alcohol. I don't know. But the alcohol certainly can do it. Yeah, definitely. And I and I don't know how if you felt this way, Dee Dee, but I thought you did an amazing job being, you know, like holding some space for him, but putting up some strong boundaries and keeping him in check. You know, I certainly did to a certain extent, but at least in the very beginning of this process, I, I tend to get really emotionally involved and had trouble setting up boundaries. So when you talk about that hose spraying everywhere, I try to dry it up and fix it. And, you know, not, not just as a producer of the show, but just as that's my tendency as a person. And I was very impressed with the way Dee Dee could be present and shut it all away. And I don't know, am I, were you able to do that? Or was that just your... I believe that I do. I think in the same vein, that's how I am as a person, um, which is kind of how we ended up connected. I think 
the person who referred me for this project was like, oh, I know the perfect person to definitely to yeah. wrangle him. I'm pretty no nonsense in general. I think anybody who knows me will tell you that. But Andy's a very smart guy. I like to think of myself as at least above average intelligence. But if you're trying, if you present yourself in some type of telling him what to do, authoritative manner, then you're going to get that oppositional defiance. He definitely suffers from oppositional defiance. I'm not a doctor. I, I'm just, as a person who's been a lifelong student of psychology and sociology, that's very clear. Because as soon as you tell him to do something, it's a problem. If you just are doing something and he's going along with it, no problem. But yeah, he's a guy who needs boundaries, for sure. I think for a lot, that deflection that he does in general is a lot of that spraying hose, but also deliberate, I think, mm. that he feeds into it, particularly when you get agitated or he he wants to shock you. I mean, like you said, he, that's kind of been his career. That's what he does, is get reactions out of people with his wackiness. And he puts on the whole Andy Dick persona. That was actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And it just, that's not necessarily him, but once you start to chip away and talk to him and get to him, he deflects so that he goes back to that wackiness so that people kind of leave him alone and with whatever he's trying to drown out with all this alcohol and, and drugs and addiction and all the other things that come in the Andy Dick package. I think out of the three of us, I'm the one that has the least patience for him. <laughs> I think that comes across uh, pretty clear. So Brandy has been great with him up to a point where, you know, I, I think at some point she wants to lose it on him and, and she really doesn't. And Dee Dee, obviously, I don't know how she hasn't strangled him, but <laughs> you know, me, I kind of don't have the patience for him because I don't like the, the kind of people that try and get a rise out of people for absolutely no reason. So, you know, I see him doing it to, to Brandy. I see him doing it to Dee Dee. I see him doing it to, and he even said one thing, you know, what was it, the last episode that was wildly racist. He realized it was racist right after he said it, and he made a face like, oh, no, I just said it. And then two seconds later, proceeded to say the exact thing that he knew was racist five seconds prior. So he kind of knows what he's saying is wrong, and he thinks it's funny. Oh, absolutely. doing it. Oh, definitely. And he does it when he gets mean with people, too. Like, he thinks that's funny and nobody else does. Yeah, I mean, because he's entertaining himself. We had just talked about Christmas, so we were on our way to the studio. And I, myself, hate Christmas. I can't stand Christmas, Christmas lights, Christmas music, Christmas tree. I can't stand it. So when the stuff pops up in, like, Home Depot and Costco in August, I want to kill people. But he was like, oh, I thought, and then he paused, right, because he knew he was about to say something racist. Just for you listeners at home, I am black, just so you know. And he he's like, oh, I I thought I thought all black people liked Christmas. Which is such a wild thing to say about anything. But in that moment, I was like, because he paused, I said, say what you're gonna say. You're gonna say it, say it. And so he says this, and I say, that's the most asinine thing I've ever heard in my life. What on earth would make you think that? I, I don't know. It's like, right. I was like, given that African-Americans in this country have a much lower socioeconomic status, less time to spend with their kids, to do all of that thing, why would you think that of all people in this country that black people are the ones that love Christmas? And he was mm. like, huh. You know, you're right. And I'm like, I know that I'm right. You knew it was racist. You got your little rye smile on and you thought you're going to get a rise, but I'm a person who deals in facts. Did so you I'm like, tell him that, that you, like, you call him on getting a rise out of you? Oh, no, I was just, I didn't call him on getting a rise because once you, I'm not going to even acknowledge that he's trying to do that. I'm just going to, it's like my dog. I just got a dog. I'm like, you just correct the behavior and keep it moving. Like, I'm not even going to deal with that nonsense. So I, I don't know if that's partially how. That's, I guess, just kind of a, a snapshot of my boundary setting and like kind of how I keep him in his Andy cage <laughs> until we get here. But that's just an example. Yeah, and I think that I was, uh, knowing the personalities involved, it was sort of, you know, when I get serious with Andy or stricter with him, it's very rare because I've, Jared and I have definitely been playing good cop, bad cop. 
you know, Andy and I, I became close to him in a lot of ways. I know I've spent a lot of time talking to him about personal things and and whatnot. So I tried to keep that, the integrity of that in check. And then when he had to really get in trouble, I uh, blamed it all on Jared. (laughs) (laughs) That explains why every time you said my name during the show, he would cringe. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really, really hard to like get a rise out of me. It's, it's literally very, very hard. And I'm just sitting here and I see the way he's just like getting drunker and drunker and just being more disrespectful to to Brandy, to to everybody. The guest. So, yeah. yeah. So I'm just like sitting there and then he'll like throw out the B word. Brandy, you're, you're a, a B word, right? And I'll say, Andy, you can't say stuff like that. You know, what's wrong with you? And then he knows I'm Jewish. So then I'll say something about the Holocaust, Right. And then I'll just say, Andy, you're getting really out of control now. And he'll say, what? And then I think he even said, like, he might be part Jewish or something. I said, Andy, you just called your producer the B word. You called the guy that's paying your salary. You made a Holocaust joke. I was like, I I, I just don't understand where you're coming from. And I was like, you're a nut. You're a grown-ass man. Act like it and behave or go home. And what, what I think... What I gather from him is that, you know, he's very, gets very, very defensive. And his way of deflecting is to like say crazy stuff. So throughout the entire show, his theme was when he got really upset was that his daughter had just died. And or all it came children. up in about, yeah, all. And then on the last episode, he was about to tell me that my children had just died. Ooh. And that's when I cut him off. But, but, the point is, is I feel like he's one of those entertainers that believes in his heart and soul that if he's not drunk or high, he won't be funny anymore and he won't be the Andy Dick that everybody wants. That's what I gather his issue I is. I just don't think it's that simple. There, there's, a, there's a part of it that I think is uh, societal in many ways. And it, when Brandy and I first started talking, I, di- I didn't quite know who Andy Dick was. And I decided, oh, I, I guess I'm going to Google him. And then, of course, I, I got all these hits on all these uh, incidents of uh, him assaulting people and insulting people. And, and frankly, you know, I, like many thousands of other people, had this post-traumatic Trump syndrome. I was sick of mean people. I mean, Trump, we had a president that was mean. The last thing I wanted to do was be on a show with a mean guy and pump up his, <laughs> that kind of humor, which I don't regard as humor. When you're mean to somebody, how's that humor? Uh, so I declined, if you recall, Brandy. I said, nah, I don't know if I want to talk to him. He doesn't sound like a very nice well, guy. You, yeah. And you also told me you didn't think you could help him if he wasn't sober. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, it seemed in some ways, if I can kind of stand back, the show and other other kinds of endeavors like the Las Vegas thing and others have supported him like a like a almost a codependent system whereby Andy could be this guy and still get paid for it. And so you have to go around cleaning up things and making up and and everything else. And all this angst that you're describing right now is facilitative of that kind of experience. You're 100% right. Because Andy said to me once, uh, we were mad at him about something. And so was some other project that he was on. And he's like, I don't understand. All the everybody hires me for what I do which is what you're talking about. And then they get mad at me and fire me. Well, there's a certain containment there. You could say that as long as you don't go a little bit, you know, say Holocaust or, you know, uh, the N-word or, or something like that where everybody goes, whoa, whoa, yeah, that's, that's against the, the rules. We can't go that far, but you can get to the edge. Mm. And that edge could be sort of meanness and, and making fun of people and all that. And I think as a society, going back to, let's say, Don Rickles and, and other comedians that made a living just insulting people. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely the brand of humor for a long time. Yeah, and uh, there is a positive side from what I heard from Andy through the Dr. Drew episode and Dan's episode. And there was a part of uh, it, and I, I mentioned this to you, Randy, that I chose to believe the 
that he is that person that actually wants to be a, a reasonable, connective person. And it's that part of it that, that I think might make some sense to, you know, the listeners. I think you, you mentioned there's this person and there's that person. And, I, I, and that's what interests me about doing this show in general. And, and we've talked about this a little bit, that it isn't just, he's all of those things. He's the dislikable person. He's the likable person. And I think we all are at times, right? You know, he, I think because of substance abuse and this character that he plays, he might be erring more to the unlikable sometimes. And he's definitely not easy to work with by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) But, and then there's all these pieces in between that fill out that caricature that we're talking about, both of those caricatures that we're talking about. To me, Andy is, at his core, he is a nice, he is a caring person. He's a a nice person. He's, believe this or not, a thoughtful person. But once, what with, as it is with a lot of different addicts, once you start to add the substances and the other things that feed into that, it becomes something completely different. But in the time that we've spent together, I've seen that. I mean, I've... Does Andy say racist things? Hell yes. But is he a mean person? Is he doing it out of spite? Is he doing it out of aggression or ignorance? I don't think so. I think he's still trying to feed into that brand of comedy. But I think at his core, Andy's a good person. I mean, it's great. People look at me crazy. I say I'm working on this podcast. And they're like, oh my God, Andy Dick. I'm like, low key, I love Andy. Like he's actually kind of great. If you can get that one window where he's not drowning whatever is bothering him um, or he's not crying about some punk-ass kid who's ruining his life or whatever it is, that Andy Dick at his core is is a nice, thoughtful, caring person. To answer your question, John, I, I think we were all a little traumatized doing these shows and cringing when he would do that to a guest that doesn't know him. I don't care if he calls <laughs> me a bitch because I have... I know he's trying to get a rise out of me and he's sitting there laughing while he's doing it. But to call our guests that, that's another story. But I couldn't have edited together a show that you heard without that being there. I didn't make the content up. I just took out some parts that were unfavorable at times and left some of them in too. So Right. And one of the things that we talked about earlier today, which I think is such a good point, Brandy, you were beginning to bring it up, and that is instead of this dichotomy, is a person a good person or a bad person? I don't think we are either totally good or totally bad. I mean, we are in general imperfect people, all of us. There isn't a, a Jesus among us walking around here. And so we have the capability of being mean and clumsy. And what alcohol does is what I was describing before, and that is that hose being turned up and spraying everybody around. And some people are better able to contain it than others because of the way that they have adapted. And Andy uh, has adapted making a career out of that kind of humor. And so it came easy, perhaps. Andy's not a bad person, not a good person, neither am I a bad person or a good person. And the question is whether or not I can contain myself and treat other people with respect and don't do stuff that make me out of control. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So the Dr. Amen episode, I assume you, you, you listened to it, right? And I guess my question to you is, let's just say Andy did everything that Dr. Amen said. Let's just say nine months having vitamins and supplements and going into and not drinking or doing drugs and going into the oxygen chamber or hyperbaric hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Do you think that would have had a positive effect that like all his years of substance abuse would be cured by that? Well, let's, let's take out the word cure. I'm sorry. And, and uh, change it to, a reasonably satisfying life. Got it. And and then I also want to take out the oxygen chamber sort of idea. Just say, 
Well, what about people that want to get in recovery? Well, I used to work in, if, when I first began in the Kaiser Permanente system, I was in the substance abuse team. And we were seeing thousands of people coming through. And let's face it, there are a lot of people out there. Uh, I have some family members who have had substance abuse problems too, who have gotten into the program, whether it's NA or AA or other non-12-step type of programs and have these incredible lives with 30, 35 years of sobriety and all that. And actually, in some ways, are even healthier than some of the people walking around on the street right now. Does that mean that he's not going to have any uh, neurological or neuropsychological uh, difficulties? I'm not saying that. But, you know, most of us without the substance abuse problems have some degree of neuropsychological difficulties. I mean, just aging alone and bad lifestyles and all that. So to answer your question, Jared, can he have a reasonably satisfying life if he gets sober? I would think so. Again, I don't know him personally, but he would have to adapt his career to a different type of humor to some degree because he gets paid for it. And it's the out of controlness that gets paid. So let's let's take some of the the ideas that Dan put forth. You know, like diet and exercise, the seeds ideas that Brandy was introducing earlier. You know, across the board, I didn't make these things up. Across the board, if we all engage in those five healthy factors, our brains would function better. Our immune systems would function better. The, through, can you go through what seeds means? They're uh, five letters and they spell seeds, like planting seeds and cultivating seeds over a lifetime. So the first one is social, social connectedness. The first E is exercise. And what I'm talking about is aerobic exercise once a day, at least 30 minutes. Education, learning something new. It could be anything. You don't need fancy degrees and all that, but just constantly you know, building a larger understanding of what the world is like around you, diet and sleep. And so let me go back over those again. So one of the factors that Brandy, you and I talked about with regard to Drew's interview with with Andy was, what, you want me to cut off all all, uh, relationships? What are you talking about here? That's the way Andy responded to Drew. And I said afterwards, you know, I imagine that Drew didn't actually mean cut off all relationships. It's the destructive relationships that he was suggesting cutting off. Because let's face it, we don't exist in a, a vacuum. And when we are lonely, actually even our telomere shrinks. Those, those are the caps on the ends of their chromosomes. Our immune system gets all fouled up. Our brain doesn't work very well. We get depressed and all that. So having a satisfying group of support people around us that are mutually nourished And that's what those 12-step programs provide in many ways. I'm not saying the only thing. Uh, So those healthy relationships are critical to our our well-being. Now, exercise. Well, let's put this in perspective. I mean, we are a a hominid creature. We've been walking around on these two feet, you know, for what, about 7 million years. Uh, And with regard to the hominid group, you know, about 2 million. But well, we've been hunter-gatherers and basically we move 10 miles a day. Who's moving 10 miles a day now? Nobody. We have the same body. But so what we need to do in terms of keeping our brain uh, healthy is actually have an aerobic boost every day. Dan was right about that. Now, second E, education. If you're not building new connections between your neurons, you don't have the connectivity in there to withstand any kind of assaults later on. So, uh, you know, like I'm older than the two of you sitting here that I'm looking at. And if I don't have the cognitive reserve, then I'm going to progress into dementia much sooner. Or if I'm a lot younger, I might get a little bit more depressed, anxious, and so on. So building those connections is critical. And what do we do to do that? We just learn stuff. We get curious about things. And that boosts our sense of self-esteem and everything else because the world's interesting. It's actually really good for happiness. Diet. Let's face it, this country is in bad shape because we're eating a bunch of crap and we're not moving. So those are two. <laughs> and they're eating a bunch of crap are the simple carbohydrates and you know trans fatty acids and all that stuff. So diet is absolutely fundamental to your neurochemistry and structure of your brain. And then finally, if I can just rattle on one more thing, sleep. 
Many people think of sleep as just one thing. Are you unconscious for most of the hours of the night? Well, most people get garbage sleep, especially in our generation now where we have electricity and we have computers and we're looking at a screen late at night. So there's a lot of very fascinating neuroscience literature out there to suggest that the quality of our sleep architecture is actually making our mental health much worse. And if you're doing substances... You're screwing up your sleep architecture big time, especially your slow-wave sleep and your REM sleep. So those five healthy factors, getting back to Jared's question, could Andy put himself together and everything else? Well, it's not like he's totally apart, but to have a better, more satisfying life and other people that are listening who also have substance abuse problems, heck yes. Can they uh, feel healthy and enjoy one another in a much more satisfying way. Absolutely. The mental health community wouldn't be in business if that weren't the case. Now, question is whether or not Andy wants to do it uh, and whether or not the world around him is structured in such, such a way that he's motivated to do it. Like you, Jared and Brandy, both had this program. Okay, we're going to follow Andy through sobriety and recovery, but it didn't turn out that way. He didn't get fired. But he's still on the Andy show, so to speak, despite the fact that he's in Las Vegas and he's not here for this particular session. I think there will be consequences, but yes. (laughs) Yeah. And so in general, there haven't been to the degree that in the ANNA community, they always say hit bottom, I lost everything, blah, blah, blah. Well, he hasn't. I mean, he still can do those cameos and, and you know, uh, whatever and get paid for it. Wow. Well, that's a really good point. And even in his social circle, which can be very toxic and, and from what I know, not hanging out with people that are really have his best interest at heart, to say the very least, there's always, he is sort of masterful at not letting himself fail 100%. He just cycles Mm. in new people, whether it's a, you know, in this industry allows for that because it's a project to project based Mm -hmm. thing. So if it's not like, you know, it's different if you're on even a, a sitcom is, you know, just one isolated project, but it runs longer than something like a 10 part series podcast or a cameo in a movie or a actual cameo birthday message or whatever. But you can just end that and move on quickly and do the next thing. So you're always infusing it. You know, he hasn't, he hasn't really lost his family or any, you know what I mean? You're, so you're right. He hasn't lost everything yet. So the Dr. Amen episode, we put up a, a screenshot of Andy's brain. Now, if for all, all the people out there that are, that are suffer from addiction, right? Because we're going to help somebody out with this show. So if Andy was to actually go into an MRI machine, like a full on, or let's just say he went into an MRI machine, would an MRI machine pick up addiction and habits like Dr. Amon's machine did? Well, Dr. Amon's machine didn't really pick up addiction. He picked up a whole bunch of holes in his brain. But is the MRI machine going to pick up that blood flow? Yeah, and, and let's talk in general about all those scanning instruments like the fMRI and, and so on. In general, what we know about substance abuse, especially alcohol, which is incredibly corrosive to the brain, or, and or let's say, because I, I know that you've talked about cocaine here. Well, let me, let me start with cocaine and I'll get to alcohol, which is a little bit more complicated. So with cocaine, you know, you're just shooting up the dopamine system and, and hypercharging, your blood pressure goes up. And it's really typical, not uncommon, for both coke and amphetamines to produce these little capillary aneurysms all over the place you know, because the, the blood vessels can't control that surge like that. And so what you might see uh, in a brain scan, I, I'm not talking about Andy here, but in general, a lot of people is sort of dead areas because, you know, these little capillaries, which are these really, really small blood vessels seem to pop all over the place. And we see that with very, very old people too. But boy, if you start doing all those stimulants really hard, you're going to find that kind of activity. So what do you see in a scan, let's say, Uh, even like even a CT, for example, you see these black areas that aren't really 
nothing's going on there. There's not as, as much substance. And, and you, you could even say it's sort of dead area. Now, with alcohol, alcohol destroys a whole lot of tissue. You'd see the same kind of thing. When I do a, these seminars and I show these slides of brains and all that, and I show an alcoholic's brain versus a so-called normal person. That Let me caution everybody because normality is a, just a general concept. Uh, you see a lot of dead areas of that severe alcoholic's brain. In other words, the ventricles get really large, meaning actual brain tissue, the gray and white matter starts shrinking up and the cerebral spinal fluid areas get larger. That means the brain sort of shrinking. And so that's a long-winded way to answer your question, Jared, that would you see something with a long time substance abuser, yeah, because substance abuse really is corrosive in general to the brain. And also head injuries, right? Oh, yeah. You you factor in substance abuse and head injuries, and now you have an exponential problem that's unfolding. And so these TBIs, these traumatic brain injuries, uh, which are typical of people substance abusing anyway, you know, they get hit or they hit their heads and, and so on and so forth. Then you find, let's say, a person in his 60s can have the brain of somebody in his late 80s or something like that, you know, that their brain is aging much, much quicker and they are more likely to develop dementia-like symptoms much quicker. So getting back to your earlier question, Jared, when you said, well, can a person rehabilitate? I don't mean that they're all of a sudden going to have the brain that they had before they started substance abusing. That's not what I'm saying at all. But can they have a reasonably satisfying life? Uh, Yeah. A lot of people get sober in their 50s, 60s, and so on. Earlier, the better. So let's say you've been abusing your brain heavily for 30 years, and now all of a sudden you're sober. Are we going to see all that activity and those uh, those cognitive and emotional capabilities uh, bounce back like that? No. Uh, it takes a long time for you to relearn. And what is relearning? It's, it's about making new connections. You know, technically, there's this term called neuroplasticity, making new connections. And that means you've got to work out. And how do you work out? You challenge your brain to do stuff like learn new things. And, and also, by the way, and this is probably one of the most hopeful pieces of information, is there is a possibility for the growth of new neurons uh, under certain conditions. So there are all these neurotropic substances. These are these like magic organic fertilizer that, that's available to you under certain conditions to grow new neurons or grow parts of neurons. And the one that gets all the press is called brain-derived neurotropic factor. And you can grow new neurons in two really very, very sensitive areas of your brain Uh, called the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. Uh, And the hippocampus is really one that is easily damaged by substances and bad diet and everything else. And so you can grow new neurons in the hippocampus if you do the things that are conducive to releasing BDNF. Aerobic exercise is the most powerful. And diet, absolutely fundamental. But I always say aerobic exercise followed by cognitive exercise. In other words, okay, I'll go running up and down the hill that I'll do after our talk, which will give me a a mile and a half with 500 feet elevation change and all that, come back all sweaty and everything. But if I do something cognitively exercising, like learn something, then I get more bang for my buck, so to speak. So you can actually grow new neurons later in life even. Are you going to fix your brain to have it a 20-year-old brain if you're 85 and you've been using substances your whole life? No, that's ridiculous. I think you're 100% right because if somebody is pre-diabetic, right, what do they do? They have to work on diet and exercise. If somebody has a heart condition or high blood pressure, whatever, you got to do diet and exercise, right? So it makes sense that somebody that suffers from substance abuse would have to do the same regimen, if not even harder. I think it's important since we're using this episode to wrap up the show to just kind of, I'll give some context. Well, first of all, Andy mentions this. He's been to rehab 27 times, but he's been sober many times, six months, a year, three years. So just mark that in your head because I have a question about that. Like if you have different time spans of sobriety in your life and, you know, now he's obviously in one where he's not, does that help 
the recovery. It's not like he's been, and when he has been sober, he's been focused on exercise and diet and nutrients. And I don't know about sleep and good relationships, but I would assume those got better. But also in January, Andy was sober, or at least more than we've seen on the show, and was taking vitamins that Dr. Eamon had sent him and exercising more. And uh, one of these toxic relationships came back in his life and he threw it all out the window and and here we are. And I don't think we actually talked about what happened and why Andy isn't with us today. So I flew in yesterday, talked to him at eight o'clock at night. He's like, oh, I have friends over. Come over. Let's hang out. I declined. And then when I started our... uh, morning before recording routine of me calling him to make sure he was up two hours before he was getting picked up. He answered at about 1230 today and said, oh, you can't come pick me up. I'm going to Las Vegas. I have a movie premiere and I'm getting picked up and going on a private jet and uh, going to Vegas. Can we do it tomorrow? You're not going back to New York until Monday, right? Why? How about Sunday? And and here we are doing the show without him. So, but going back to these years of sobriety that he's had uh, sprinkled in, you know, and his brain still looks like that. So, in general, for the listeners, which, uh, you know, I'm always compelled to, you know, remember that people are hoping to get some sense of understanding about substance abuse and all that. In general, can your life get better if you've been using substances over a long period of time? Yes, certainly. Is Are you going to have a 20-year-old brain if you've been doing it all and now you're 70 like me? No, but you're certainly not going to tumble into dementia as quickly if I were that same guy using substances all along. So are, is there hope? Heck yes, there's hope. But many of these things that we're talking about right now aren't like, there's a lot of incredible science, neuroscience, epigenetics, psychoneuroimmunology, and all that support for some real basic ideas. I mean, even down to gene expression, which I think is so fascinating that even though these seeds ideas that we're all agreeing to, all your experts and everybody are generally agreeing to, you know, you started with Tammy, that was the social, wasn't it? And Dan highlighted some of the same kind of things that I was talking about. And we talk about spirituality and family and whatnot. Oh, absolutely. In fact, you you mentioned uh, in our earlier conversation, the guy that knew Ram Dass. And, oh, Noah and, Levine. Yeah. And so, yeah, I got to say that actually I even started off in psychology in that world, you know, going around the world and I was meditating in ashrams and all that. So I'm a big believer in the health benefits of uh, yoga, meditation, spirituality, which I really regard as connectedness with others and a sense of interdependence, whatever tack on little ideas, you theoretical ideas you want to tack on, if it's not just love and compassion, connectedness, uh, you don't need all the other stuff. And I think uh, mindfulness and those kinds of meditative practices help a person learn how to savor the subtleties around them, which we can then say is the way to build in happiness. Because if you can actually enjoy subtleties in your surroundings, we know from neuroscience that you can have more pleasurable experiences than this roller coaster event kind of thing that Andy and other people are into. Because as soon as you go up, you're going to crash down. But we also know from a lot of neuroscience research that if you can see little parts of your environment with some degree of satisfaction, the dopamine circuit, because your dopamine receptors are always recycling, have chance to recycle. You can't do that if you're doing this roller coaster event. Uh, And if I could use one analogy, and so I'm a big skier and I look up right now, I'm looking at the ski area. And uh, so there are two people that I know that are older than me that have been skiing for the longest while. And one of them was the director of the largest and most prestigious uh, ski schools in the country and probably the world at Taos Ski Mountain. And he's now 87 or something. But uh, I said, "Uh, Tony, what do you think is the way to really enjoy your skiing? He said, John, Paint yourself down the mountain. 
I said, wow, paint yourself down. He didn't say challenge the mountain, go down through those moguls and all that. Like my other friend, that's what he does. And I ski with him and it's like, whoa, God, you're going to run into a tree next. What, what is this? It's the painting yourself down the mountain that actually provides more continuity between pleasurable experiences events. And we know that about happiness too. People who are addicted don't have that opportunity because they're riding that roller coaster and they can't recycle those dopamine receptors. And so you could say, well, what can you do? Well, mindfulness or whatever you want to call it, contemplative attention or, or whatever. And savoring subtle experiences, not as big extreme ones, but painting yourself down the mountain is recovery. And actually, it's so much longer lasting. So instead of 27 rehabs, maybe the 28th, if it includes that long lasting one, can be sustained. I like that. I think that's a great analogy. But if somebody is listening out there that was tuning in for the laughs and maybe has, you know, their own substance abuse issues or has a loved one who does, you know, I think it can be overwhelming to think, okay, tomorrow I'm just going to stop. I'm going to, like these extreme ideas of I'm bad if I do this, I'm good if I just stop and change my life tomorrow. But we can't, nobody can change their life in a moment. So what's a more digestible way to think about going out and getting help tomorrow or starting on a healthier path and and moving towards or becoming sober? You know, that's been a big debate in the chemical dependency treatment system. And because of the debate, there's the, let's say, rising popularity of harm reduction. And uh, the sort of, it's almost like the middle path to some degree because the other one's so severe. You know, like, oh, what? You're going to cut off all my pleasure? What, what are you talking about? And I got to go in there in the old model, which was really loony. And that was the Synanon model. You know, I'm going to just shout at you and tell you what a loser you are. Tough, blah, 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 blah. Is that the tough love model? You could say was a, was a variant of that. And Synanon and all those other kinds of things were like, cults almost. <laughs> but that tough, let's call it tough love, kind of get your life together. What's wrong with you, you stupid idiot? You know, and all that. And then, well, the person, like I've even heard Andy in a couple episodes, and I think the one, especially with Drew, was what, like you're taking all my relationships away? What do you mean? I'm going to stop having any kind of pleasure? And what I was, you know, of course, Drew wasn't saying that, but what I was thinking was, had he had more time, I'm sure he would have gone into this uh, more moderated, you could say, harm reduction approach uh, that would include helping people learn how to have pleasure. So if, if I could uh, hum a few bars about the Iceland project that I think is so amazing, it's actually sweeping the world right now. So my friends in at Reykjavik University in Iceland uh, and a good friend of mine named Harvey Milkman, who used to teach up in Denver, put their heads together back in the late 90s because the Icelandic youth were the most out of control youth in all of Europe. They were out there at three o'clock in the morning throwing beer bottles through windows and, and the parents were going, what can we do? Oh my God. And the president of the country got involved with the psychologists at Reykjavik University, as well as my uh, friend, the visiting professor. And they put together this plan. And in 10 years, they went from the most out of control youth, substance abuse youth, teenagers, to the most focused and happiest youth in all of Europe in 10 years. And the rest of Europe started going, what the heck did you do over there? And so they started to adopt the Icelandic plan. So many countries, now even Portugal, which Portugal has illegal drugs, Iceland doesn't. So totally different populations, you know, Poland, all over the place. Now 21 countries, including Colombia, New Caledonia, Singapore, other countries have adopted this plan. So what's this plan? It's kind of like the seeds. <laughs> and, and it's also about making the seeds enjoyable. And so what they did was they taught the Icelandic youth initially this in the late 90s hey you know we we know you like to go out and have fun at night and 
you know, corrals and all that. How about if we give you some opportunities to go have fun in different ways? We'll give you these fun cards and you get to go skating over here, skiing over there, concert over there, all this stuff. And they had these fine fun cards for free. You could do all this stuff. And also they increased the social peer support, the family support, the attachment factors, and, uh, and also learning their, in other words, cultivating their curiosity. So it's a multidimensional plan that's now called Planet Youth. And it's a goldmine of all these, uh, not just academic studies, but also reports of what all these countries have done. Now, now think of what Colombia has been through, you know, with all the abductions and kidnappings and all, murders and everything. They've adopted it. Chile has adopted it, uh, and they're finding that it is quite useful. So it's a multidimensional plan that is similar to the seeds. So nobody, me or Dan or the Iceland people, we're not making this stuff up. It's not my plan or their plan. It's all of ours that seems to be com- pretty consistent. That's amazing. And, you know, I guess it applies to youth and, and to adults. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We all need those same nutrients, the nutrients of having friends and family members that care about us, the nutrients that you get from actually moving your body, the nutrients that you get and the connectivity you get by actually being curious about the world around you and feeding yourself with reasonable stuff and getting reasonable sleep too. And uh, I didn't talk enough about sleep, but we could do that another time. I really appreciate your insight, Dr. Arden, and all of the time you've spent with me over the past months working this out. I've actually enjoyed it. I've enjoyed Likewise. getting to know you and being a part of it and actually enjoying your sense of compassion that you have for Andy. Well, you have been so generous with your time. And I think that all of us have, you know, this was a supposed to be a show about a journey for Andy to his 28th stint at sobriety. Uh, but I think it kind of ended up being a huge journey for all of us and a learning experience for me, absolutely. And hopefully for anyone who has stuck with us and chosen to listen to this whole show. Thank you very much, Dr. Arnon. Thank you. And call me John, though. John. <laughs> Inside the mind of any day, so many ways to turn. So take your pick inside the mind of Andy Dick. If you are in the United States or Canada and struggling with anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, or a crisis of any kind, please text HOME to 741-741 and a crisis counselor will respond to you right away, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Text H-O-M-E to 741-741. And to find more resources and support for addiction, visit addictedpodcast.com slash resources or read the show notes of this episode. Please know you are not alone and recovery is possible. It's never too late. Reach out and get help now.